This is IFS Talks, an audio series to deepen connection with the internal family systems model through conversations with lead trainers, authors, practitioners, and users. Today on IFS Talks, we're speaking with Kate Lindgren. Kate Lindgren is an independent clinical social worker in private practice with over 30 years of experience. Kate is a certified internal family systems therapist, and she's on the faculty of Intimacy from the Inside Out as a lead trainer. She's also on the faculty of Boston College School of Social Work, where she teaches a class on IFS. Most recently, she has been on a quest to discover, welcome, and heal her parts that hold both explicit and implicit biases in an effort to more fully embody her true self. Kate lives and practices in the Boston area and in Martha's Vineyard. Kate, welcome to IFS Talks and thank you for speaking with us today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks much, Kate, for willing to sit with us. What parts come up today hearing this bio of yours? Ah, it makes me feel old. (laughs) It reminds me I've been around for a while. (laughs) And it also speaks to how central IFS is in my life, actually. In my practice and in teaching and also in teaching uh, using IFS with couples or um, intimacy from the inside out. Let me also say, Kate, how much I appreciate your presentations with Percy on the IFS Institute Online Continuity Program on this model of yours on diversity and inclusion. Ah, Thank you for saying that. Mm. Thanks so much for such precious work. It's really precious in many ways. That was a labor of love. A labor of love, yes. It sounds like that. So we currently are in a a pretty unusual time throughout history, Mm. being uh, coping with with things changing day to day uh, with the with the coronavirus. Um, I'm just curious if you could speak to your experience with that currently and what parts have been coming up for you and how you're making adjustments. Yeah, good question. I know it's something that we're all dealing with. And one of the things I think about is how I don't think ever before in history, there's something happening that affects each of us on the entire planet in similar ways. It's something we all share on a scale never before. And that's very powerful for me to think about on a large scale. And then more personally, um, You know, my practice is largely already online, so that has not been a big adjustment for me. Uh, But what I do notice is that every session, every day, a lot of it is about how people are coping with this and the challenges people are facing. So there's there's no getting away from it, personally or professionally. And I'm sure you all can relate to that. Um, You know, personally, I have a 
child who was to graduate college in May and her, her graduation has been canceled and that's very sad for me. On the other hand, I feel very grateful that I'm able to keep working, keep connected with my clients, keep teaching my classes, and um, don't have to suffer some of the pain that so many people we know are experiencing. Yes. And Kate, how much IFS or your connection with this community is helping you to cope with this pandemic tsunami right now? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, enormously. Uh, for example, uh, being able to be in touch with the uh, IFIO team, we're in touch regularly, sending things to each other, supporting each other. Using the model in my work with clients not only helps the clients, but it helps me stay unblended from the parts of me that can get really afraid if I start thinking this thing through and all the potential consequences. You know, like with the economy, for example, uh, I could go down a rabbit hole of catastrophic thinking. And so using IFS to unblend from that and really trust in myself and have confidence that what I know to be true is no matter what happens, I'm going to deal with it and I can deal with it. And being able to pass that on to clients and colleagues, family and friends is really, really helpful. Beautiful, yes. Yeah, that embodied confidence in such a gray zone is is something that all counselors are sort of called to do right now. Yes. And having that IFS back, background and backbone of self is... Yeah, it's a great reference point. Mm. Yeah. Are you finding particular themes coming up with with clients? Is is everyone showing up with anxiety and fear, or are are there other things that are surprising you with your work with your clients? Uh, not necessarily surprising me, but I do realize that having. I do a lot of long-term psychotherapy. So I've been working with a number of people over many, many years and we've aged together. And as I sit with them and hear session after session, people acknowledging, you know, I'm over 60, I'm over 70, I'm 80. Um, and realizing how much risk the added risk for those of us 60 and older, I feel a level of appreciation for the connection I have with them. And I really feel into the love I have for them. And I'm also feeling into the fear of losing some of them if they were to get sick. Yes. So it's like my own, my, we all have our personal worlds, but then our worlds as therapists expands because all these people we work with uh, are so important to us. And in my case, really, really valuable relationships in my life. Could be hard now. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
here may be a difficult question, Kate. Is this pandemic, in your opinion, and given its universal nature, is this creating and strengthening new biases, like nationalisms or hedgisms, or just reducing them? Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, I've thought a lot about this, but my guess is it's not reducing them. When I hear things like the nightly uh, briefing, the White House briefing, and I hear uh, Trump calling this the Chinese virus, it really, really worries me and concerns me that it's contributing to xenophobia in this country and uh, bias. And I worry about it contributing to nationalism, closing borders to stay safe. Mm-hmm. And the way they talk of the, of the older ones. Well, and that too. Um, you know, if there was someone, was it the lieutenant governor in Texas was saying, did, I don't know if you saw that a couple of days ago, the clip where he said if he had to give up his life to forego treatment for the coronavirus in order to save someone, you know, free up the care for younger people, he would do that. And that horrified some of my parts because it contributes to the belief that um, not everybody is going to get treatment and we're going to have to start thinking about who's more valuable, who's less valuable. Totally. And Kate, maybe here another difficult question. How can the IFS work with biased parts help us navigate this pandemic moment? It's, that's a great question, too. And, you know, part of what's most valuable about this work is, first of all, to make space to normalize parts of us that carry biased beliefs. Mm-hmm. And we can talk more about that. But once the, this is normalized, then our parts that carry shame about having biased beliefs, hopefully can relax back so that we can access Mm -hmm. these parts and really help them understand how they came to hold these beliefs and help unburden them from some of these beliefs, which are really limiting Mm -hmm. in our view. Yes. And it's open, it's really working toward more open-hearted or a self-led connection, which is where we hold compassion and care for each other versus um, competition for limited resources, for example. So it sounds like it's really important for us to become aware of our parts that hold biases as a first step. Yes, absolutely. So there you go. We are going to dive into your special interest okay <laughs> on diversity inclusion biases couples lgbt how did this come up to you well it's interesting um i've always noticed in the ifs community that it's it's a pretty limited demographic at least here in the states pretty white pretty um older largely female community, older meaning mm, average age, late 40s, 50s. So I've always noticed that and thought about it. And then one year, I think it was about five years ago, Derek Scott and I did a workshop at the IFS conference entitled 
heterosexuality as a legacy burden. And we were looking at how the assumption of heterosexuality, how it gets acquired, mm-hmm. the different ways it gets acquired, and how it impacts those of us who do not identify as heterosexual. And uh, we had about 20 people in the workshop. And when I tell this story, I always want to say, I want to qualify it by saying, I have complete and total love and respect for all the people who attended the workshop. And And those were, I have just informed the participants. Yes, yes. And they were mostly people we knew. And it was a big learning for me and, and I think for Derek we, we started the workshop by going around and introducing ourselves and um, saying why, asking people to, to share why they chose this workshop. And as we went around the room, we heard so many people say, oh, well, I'm not homophobic. Um, I'm just here because I love you guys and I just wanted to hear what you're up to and I'm curious about this topic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can imagine that felt lovely. These were, this was my community. These are people I love and knew. There were a couple of people I didn't know. By the end of the workshop, however, we said, all parts are welcome. And we really mean it. And all parts ended up coming in the room, or at least many parts. And there, and I realized I wasn't prepared for it. People were speaking for their parts that carried homophobic beliefs. Okay. Implicit homophobia. Like, I'm not homophobic, but, um, you know, my child just came out as lesbian and I'm I'm not happy about it. You know, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the workshop, I felt really uh, kind of stunned and... Over the few days after, I realized I was really, my parts were deeply wounded because I didn't see it coming. And one would think I would have anticipated that some parts might come that had some implicit homophobia, but I didn't anticipate it. And so Derek and I started talking about what does this mean? This is our community where we feel safe. And to find out that if you inv- if you really scratch the surface, there's more there than what we see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean for us as members of this IFS community? And what does it mean for clients sitting with therapists who have implicit homophobic beliefs? Really important question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we wrote to Dick and John and... Uh, expressed our concerns, and uh, from that came the following year's conference theme was, are all parts welcome, or all parts welcome, question mark. And we were part of a larger panel of folks in the IFS community from marginalized communities talking about uh, the ways in which we feel welcome and the ways in which some of our parts don't feel welcome. 
So what does bias means and what does implicit bias means coming back to the beginning? Yeah, so bias, most simply bias is a preference and one for one thing over another. And uh, not all biases are parts that we need to change. For example, I like to say, you know, I hope you don't mind that I have a slight bias, you know, maybe even a bigger bias for my child as opposed to yours. Um, that's just part of being a mom, right? Or I might have a bias for the Red Sox in Boston over the other baseball teams, if I were a baseball fan. Uh, so it really quite simply is a preference for one group or thing over another. It becomes problematic when it's a bias for one particular group over another based on uh, stereotypes and, and you know absorbed beliefs that may not be true. Uh, and are not based on fact, and it becomes limiting in that way. So maybe they are based on the fear and the fear of the unknown? They can be based on fear, yeah. In fact, a lot of, we like to think of, uh, Percy Ballard and I, who, who um, developed a way to use IFS to access and work with biased beliefs, parts that carry biased beliefs, that is, We like to be believe that, um, we like to say, uh, parts that carried bias beliefs are most often protectors. So implicit bias are those bias beliefs we have that we're not even aware of that are influencing our behavior every second of every day. And we don't know them until we work to access them. So, Kate, are you saying that I, that I'm a psychologist for three decades or, or more, I am biased too? Yes. I wouldn't say you are biased. I would say, yes, you most certainly have parts that carry biased beliefs. And you could help me turn my implicit biases explicit. Yes. And once they become explicit, then... You can work with them to understand how they uh, came to take on these beliefs, the protective function they serve in your system internally. We get to see, we could see who they're protecting in terms of exiles, vulnerabilities. And then we could help unburden them so that they don't have to be stuck in this job of holding a bias. Does it feel like the the protective mechanism of a lot of these bias parts um, is protecting exiles for the individual, or does it feel as though their legacy burdens influenced by society and family and context? All of that. Yeah, all of that. Kate, you and Percy, you both talk of uh, anti-biased parts. Yes. What parts are those, the anti-biased? Yeah, these are, I, I love these parts. Anti-biased parts are the parts of us that, you know, as social workers or mental health professionals, there are activist parts. They're um, parts that see something that isn't, 
working out there in the world uh, that we want to change. And these are the parts that uh, get us involved in social action or maybe bring us to Black Lives Matters meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're very valuable parts. What happens oftentimes, though, is they get in the way of us accessing the notion that we might actually have other parts that carry biased beliefs. So, for example, you'll you hear a lot of uh, people in our community or liberal people, for example, saying, I'm not racist, I'm not homophobic, I'm, I'm a social activist, I couldn't possibly have parts like that. So that's an anti-bias part. An anti-bias part is going to keep me from looking at my own, for example, parts that might carry some racist beliefs or my own parts that might carry some internalized homophobia. I could, right? And so these parts can be outward facing and I'm focusing on, I'm going to change all of you. I'm going to help you all change so you're not homophobic or racist or sexist or you know, biased in any of the other ways that it shows up. And inwardly, it manifests when I say, it would mean something bad about me if I had a biased belief. So there you have the role you say. You say there is a, a role for shame on keeping biased beliefs unconscious. Yes. It's about shame again. Yes, there's shame again, and I think it's the biggest impediment impediment to accessing our biased beliefs because we, so many of us carry beliefs that if we were to have biased beliefs, it would mean we are bad people. And what if we could understand that we, we are all, we innocently absorbed messages from the culture, the society, family, schools, churches, community, about all kinds of things. A soup of biases, somehow. Yeah. Television. Included, yes. Yeah. And I'm also surprised, Kate, you are offering and doing workshops on bias. You and Percy, I believe. Yes. And with Derek Scott in the past offering people an opportunity to work on these biases. Are people really interested in? Yeah, it's, um, it really is heartwarming to me how popular the workshop is. So my question is, are mainly the ones victims that suffer these biases, like black or gay, lesbian, transgender people and their families, who really are interested in your workshops, or do also the ones that are not suffering in such direct ways, this bigotry and bias is interested in? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's both. I think initially we would attract people who did feel marginalized and, um, you know, could feel some community in a workshop that would talk about that. Now, uh, it's expanded and people who would not necessarily identify as marginalized or attending. We, sometimes we do this workshop with a, an, a lawyer by the name of David Hoffman, who's also IFS trained. And we've 
teamed up with him and gotten many, many lawyers coming to our workshops. And, you know, of course, they have an investment in working with their biased beliefs because we see it very obviously in the legal system in this country, how biased beliefs impact justice, for example. Absolutely. Yeah, you're doing some incredibly important work. Thank you. Yeah. Kate, I love bringing Dick into this conversation and I'm going to quote him and maybe you will like to comment on it. And he says in this chapter on racism that you wrote to this book, Innovations and Deliberations. Yes. And it says, my experience is that racist parts don't enjoy their jobs. And if we take care of the vulnerable parts that they protect, they will change. My advice is to first try being curious about how a racist part came by its views. So, do you want to comment on this? Yes, that's it right there. If we can be curious about how they came upon this belief and make a lot of space for that from curiosity... Once we get all the shame part, the shaming parts, the inner critics back, and we can really be curious, it will make sense to us how they took on these beliefs. And then we can help unburden them. It would be really wonderful to access Trump's <laughs> xenophobic yes. and racist parts and help oh. him unburden them. It, would be so incredible we have a lot of a lot of leadership with explicit bias right now and I'm, i'm wondering how your system in working with with so much sensitivity and attention and intention um i wonder how your system uh is adapting to that Mm. well it's sort of a nightly ritual in this household we turn on the briefing on CNN, I get completely triggered and start saying reactive things about what I'm hearing. And then we all turn it off and talk about how we shouldn't watch the briefing anymore. (laughs) And, and when I, you know, I don't want to live in that kind of a reactive energy. It's not good for my system and it's really not helpful for the world. And so if I try to get unblended from those protectors that are so angry at what I'm hearing, and, and I'm feeling very judgmental and critical of what I'm hearing, and believe it or not, what helps me is I think about Trump having extreme protectors. These are extreme protectors. And so what that says to me is they're protecting extreme vulnerability. And for a moment... I can connect with a little bit of self-leadership there. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Kate, bringing Dick back to this conversation, Mm. the title of this chapter of him is Should We Exercise or Embrace? our inner bigots. Right. 
Do you want to comment on this title? Yeah, I love that he wrote this chapter, and it, it is what Percy and I, um, and sometimes Percy, David, and I do is this is what we're making space for is embracing these parts. And it doesn't mean giving them free reign and um, allowing them to, to take us over. It means embracing them with curiosity so that we can help unburden them. I've yet to meet a part that carries bigotry that didn't want to unburden from that. Now, I do practice in New England for the most part, so I'd be curious to see if that's true in other parts of the world. But my guess is it would be. Yeah, it seems likely. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about, I mean, it, it probably seems obvious, but I'm curious about some of the burdens, like the actual burdens that those bigoted parts carry. Yeah, so let's think about a homophobic part, or for me, an a internalized homophobia, parts of me that carry or have carried beliefs about gay people. What purpose could that part serve in my system? Well, one thing is that part wants to make sure I fit in. It's learned that in order to be accepted and to fit in and to get uh, all the benefits that family and culture offers around heterosexuality, you need to be like this. So you are telling us how do we acquire those biases? That's a, that's a, a, yeah, that's how it's trying to be helpful to me, for example. So some of the burden would be around, uh, if I don't think this way, I might be uh, shunned from the group. Absolutely. Or, yeah. It's about exclusion. Yeah. And of course, at the same time, as somebody growing up gay, the other side of it is knowing that I didn't fit in in that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then learning to hide that in order to you know, protect myself in family and community. So it's kind of a double burden. Makes sense. Yes. Kate, you and Percy say is... Dick says that we need self-to-self -self connection or spirit-to-spirit -spirit connection. What is this, Kate, and what parts get in the way? Yeah, that's heart-to-heart um, -heart connection as opposed to parts, part-to-part. -part. Protector to protector, we're not going to be heard, and that kind of is what that's one of the things we teach in IFS and particularly in IFIO and couples work is if you're trying to get a need met from a protector, the chances are not very good that you that need is going to be met. And when we can speak on behalf of our needs and our experience, we're much more likely to be heard. So listening from curiosity versus 
from parts that are already thinking about how I want to respond, that are getting in the way of my listening. That kind of heart-to-heart connection is where, I think, where true intimacy is possible and true connection. Speaking on behalf of vulnerabilities. That would be very helpful and a great booster to most of our relationships. Yes. And it's easy to say, it's not so easy to do, I know. No, we all know that is very, very difficult. And mainly with our spouses, right? Yes, right, <laughs> yes. Um, I'm here, you know, in our, um, in, in our social distancing lockdown at home. It's just me and my daughter. But I, I think a lot about how many people are um, kind of stuck with their with their families in ways that they haven't been ever. And, and I really wonder, you know, how to reach those people with the ability to access this vulnerability in relationship. Because I think people are fairly stressed out um, in, in, in their personal relationships with the uncertainty and the, prox- yes. the proximity. Yes. That's another theme I'm hearing in my clinical work the past couple of weeks is people being home together 24-7 and how difficult that is without being able to go out to work or go out and socialize and have some space from each other. It's very challenging. And can you imagine if there are lots of, if this is a parts-led family or couple? Yeah. Wow. Can be messy. I imagine it is for a lot of people right now. Kate, could you please tell us a bit about your journey into the mental health profession? Was there something in your personal life that was determinant for you to become a psychotherapist? Yeah, you know, I'm one of those people who has always known that this is what I want to do. I never wanted to do anything different. And to this day, I've never had second thoughts. And I like to say that um, I often say I had my first couple when I was seven years old. And let's just say it didn't go very well. I was not able to help them, unfortunately, despite my best efforts to keep them together. Um, But, you know, another piece of the story of how I became a social worker in particular is, uh, I was thinking about this recently, and when I was growing up in the 70s, I know it just doesn't exist anymore, but we used to have uh, social welfare in terms of financial payments to families. And my mother was a single parent with three small children. And so we were on welfare. And welfare, the welfare department would assign a quote-unquote social worker to the family. These were not social workers as we understand social workers now. I don't really know who these people were, but um, oftentimes they would show up at our house unannounced and start, one of the things they would do is go through my mother's closet looking for men's clothing. And and now I understand they were looking to see if she was scamming the system 
because supposedly if a man is living in the home, you don't need to be on welfare. And I remember witnessing my mother's humiliation around that, although I didn't have that word then. And I felt it too, even though I didn't quite understand why. And right around then, I remember saying to myself, I want to help people, but I'm going to do it differently. <laughs> I am not going to treat people like this. Beautiful. So I, I sort of came out of the womb ready to do this, and then those experiences only made me more determined to help people. And how did you come across with IFS? How did that happen to you? Yeah, well, I, th I think it was about um, in 2007, a friend of mine told me about IFS, and I had had the book, you know, the original Internal Family Systems book uh, on my bookshelf for a while, but hadn't read it. And a friend of mine said, you really should take this training. It's amazing. And I was going through a difficult time in my life. Uh, so I took the training more for me. And right away, it spoke to me on a cellular level. And so many things made sense about what was happening in my life and how I was responding to it. And I loved what it had to offer for me personally and for me professionally, and I never looked back. And then you, you started the path of becoming a trainer. Yeah. What was that like? How did you get involved? Uh, well, I took the IFIO training with Tony Herbine Blank way back. I think it was the second time she offered it. And that was life-changing for me. Um, and I wanted more of that. And I wanted to, to be part of that team because uh, I, I liked what I saw that they had. And so I started, um, you know, staffing Tony's trainings and then eventually became an assistant trainer. And then uh, now I'm co-leading Uh, and that really is such a joy in my life. It's very special. What did they have? What, how could you uh, articulate that? Yeah, I saw them. I, they, it, as a participant, I saw they had a camaraderie. They had an affection for each other. They had a connection that I, or at least that's what I imagined, that I wanted to be part of. And they were all fabulous people. And then when I started staffing the trainings, and I've staffed uh, regular IFS trainings a lot too, and there's a lot of this there as well. Um, Tony has a smaller team that's um, where it's very predictable. Um, it's not a different team every training. There's a core team that travels around. And we've been able to really deepen our relationships, our connections. There's a trust we have for each other because we've traveled so much and worked so much together. We work with each other's parts. We do the work with each other. Uh, we're working with our stuff as it comes up. And I think the participants feel it in the training because across the board, the feedback is uh, that it's an amazing experience. 
Yeah, that that must have a profound effect on the, the participants. Yeah, it's very special. It's my hope, Kate, that we can sit together again and dive into these interests of yours on relationships and couples. I would love that. We will do that. But I'm curious now, I understood that you are teaching IFS to young students in an university, right? Yes. And, and so how does IFS lens on them? They are young people. Yes. Um, they're uh, second year graduate students, and most of them are pretty young. And, you know, it's interesting because in a way, one thing I notice is they they pick it up pretty quickly. And I think that might have to do with they don't have a lot of unlearning to do from years of practicing in a particular way. And they take to this notion of natural multiplicity so easily. And I think it's maybe it's easier for young younger people. I think actually it is. And they're so open and they there's there's no uh how do i say sometimes at trainings there there are it's hard to be a, a beginner again for therapists who have been working for a long time and in class with students who haven't been practicing yet there isn't any of that so there's so much more energy available for them to learn makes sense much less to unlearn somehow. Yeah. I find that I work, I work with a lot of young uh, undergrads and I find that they just take to the model. There's not a lot of skeptical parts. They drop right in and they yeah. find, find their parts really easily. It, alwa it always amazes me. Yeah, it really is a joy to work with them. So what is next for you? Kate, what's on, on your horizon? Do you have any ambitions or projects in the pipeline? Oh, and many, many congratulations, Kate. You just became a lead trainer. Oh, thank you. Uh, yes. Thank you. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, um, it, well, it's interesting because I'm at a place in life where I want to do a little bit less. I've been very, very, very busy. and um, You have. Yeah. And I'd like to cut back a little bit and probably in clinical hours so that I can teach more. And I want to continue with IFIO. I think it's really takes this, the beauty of this IFS model um, to help us work with couples in a way that I think is so helpful for families and especially for children. So you are slowing down your clinical work and speeding up your teachings. Yeah, that's the goal. Um, everything's been canceled, so my life has slowed down. And it surprised me that some parts of me are feeling relieved about that. So I really want to listen to those parts. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe not book everything back up again when things clear around the virus. Yeah. Kate, we need hope so much right now do you want to share with us 
some of your hopes, best hopes for the future with IFS and also your best hopes for the world in such a complex and difficult moment we are going through. Uh, bringing self-leadership to the world. And, you know, that's partly why um, I didn't mention, but I am on the Diversity and Inclusion Committee for IFSI. And that's our goal, is, is to help bring self -leader, more self-leadership to the IFS community around, you know, some of the implicit Uh, bias in our communities and sometimes explicit, but more often implicit, and to, to really support Dick's commitment to bringing IFS to the world, self-leadership to the world. Yeah. That, that's my goal, that's my hope. If I can contribute to that in any way, however small, it, you know, I know this sounds kind of trite, but it will have been worth it for me. Yes, you are already. You really are. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And that's a beautiful hope. Self-leadership means <laughs> means good leadership. Right. Well not right. not that they're not that it's not that it's good or bad, but Well, I do have parts that have opinions about what's good and bad these days <laughs> at the leadership level. <laughs> So, Kate, thank you so much for having us. It was a joy to be here with you and Tisha. And I hope we can keep meeting and sharing this model, our work and our lives. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to be with you both. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you for having me. This was an IFS Talks episode an audio series to deepen connections with the internal family systems model through conversations with lead trainers, authors, practitioners, and users.